You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Associate Pastor Andrew Morton. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I do not like failure. I don't like to fail. I don't like to feel like I've failed. I don't like to feel like I've been a failure. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one here this morning who feels that way. It's often said that we tend to be our own very worst critics, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. One of the reasons why that is often true is because we know the real us. We know the messy us. We know the unedited, unvarnished, broken, sinful us in ways that maybe other people don't always get to see. I once heard a pastor talking about this, and and, and he, he said it this way. He said, if I knew everything that there was to know about you, then I probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. But if you knew everything that there was to know about me, then you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me either. And why did he say this? What's the point? Is because we're all broken, because we're all sinners, because we are all in need of the grace of God in our lives every single day. But even so, we can feel haunted by our mistakes by our past failures, by the memory of things that we wish we had done differently, by the things that we wish that we had done or the things that we wish that we could take back. These things can linger with us and we can often feel a sense of shame, of regret, of sorrow. We can fixate on these and feel like we're trapped by some of those decisions. And and I think that's part of why we tend to be hard on ourselves and we tend to be our own worst critics. But At the same time, if we're honest, I think there could be other motivations as well sometimes. I don't know about you, but I tend to be less bothered about the mistakes that other people make than I am about the mistakes that I make. Uh, now, Now, is that because I'm just such a generous, compassionate person and I give everyone the benefit of the doubt and I just hold myself to a stricter standard? Well, I do hold myself to a strict standard, but it's not out of my compassion and generosity More often than not, it's out of my pride. I think, well, it's okay for them to make mistakes. You know, they can't help it, but I need to hold myself to a higher standard. I want to think more highly of myself. I expect something more of myself. And and maybe you felt the same way too, that often our pride and our desire to think of ourselves in a certain way that we might be able to say we're above certain things or we don't make those kinds of mistakes. Sometimes that can drive the way that we think about ourselves and that can cause our failures to impact us more and more deeply. Well, what's, what's my point here in saying all of this? The point is to say that we long for freedom from our brokenness from the effects of our brokenness. We want to be free from our guilt and of our shame. But in addition to that, we need something more. We need a whole new mindset. We need a whole new framework for how we think about ourselves in relation to God and in relation to other people. We don't just need to be forgiven and given a second chance. We need, to to quote a Christian band from the 90s, a whole new way to be human. Thanks be to God, we find this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we open up God's word this morning, we will be reminded that in Christ we are given a new start as new creatures. Jesus changes everything. 
He gives us a new status. He gives us a new identity, a new perspective, and a new purpose. And so our scripture reading for this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian believers, chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. I invite you to open up your Bible or your Bible app if you have that with you today, or simply to follow along with the words on the screen. This is what we read from God's word. So from now on, the Apostle Paul writes, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Sorry, the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage, friends, offers us good news. It declares to all who are troubled by their past and present sins and failures that these things no longer define us. They need no longer control us. And that is because through the person and work of Jesus Christ, all who believe in Christ receive a changed status. We're given a new start. Though our sins and our brokenness are a wedge that have driven us far away from God, we have now been brought near again through Jesus Christ. This message of hope and restoration is at the heart of our passage. Looking now specifically, zooming in at verses 18 and 19, we read this. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul joyfully tells us here that God has brought us back to himself, that God has reconciled us to himself. That means that God has taken the differences, the division, the barrier, keeping us away from him, and he has brought that down. He has taken that away so that we could be restored to that relationship. And Paul tells us not only that that is true, but it's striking here. Because think about how that relationship was broken. God was not the one who severed that relationship. He's not the one who broke the fellowship we had with him. We did that. We are the one who wronged him, yet he is the one who takes the initiative to restore what was lost, to bring us back to himself. Verse 19 tells us that not only has he reconciled us as individual people, but he's reconciling the world, the whole cosmos in Christ, telling us that all that was lost and broken because of human sin and rebellion is being restored, is being made new by God's love and mercy. Reflecting on this passage, John Calvin made this observation, asking, why did Jesus come? 
What was the point in Christ coming to earth? He says, for what purpose then has God appeared to men in Christ? For the purpose of reconciliation. That hostilities being removed, those who were aliens, those who were strangers, who were foreigners, who were outside of God's covenant, might be adopted as sons. This reconciliation doesn't come from us. It doesn't originate from us. It doesn't come from our initiative. It comes from God. It begins in the heart of God. But its end result is that it brings us back to God and it brings all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise to God. That's why Bible scholar Philip Edgecombe Hughes sums it all up by saying reconciliation proceeds from God and returns to God. Thus all begins and ends in God. He is the source and he is the goal. To him be the glory. Verse 19 tells us that God no longer counts our sin against us. Well, how is that possible? How can God's perfect love, which means that he wants to bring us back, he wants to restore this relationship, but how can that exist side by side with his perfect justice, which tells us that he must deal with sin. He cannot let it slide. He cannot turn a blind eye toward that brokenness. This is made possible because Jesus took our punishment for us. And he gave us his reward. Verse 21 explains, God made him who had no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not merely we might have or gain the righteousness of God, but we might become the righteousness of God. That we might take on that characteristic of Christ, that he would truly change us and make us new, which is what he is doing. In effect, this passage tells us that Jesus has traded places with us. He got what we deserved, and we are given what he deserves. And that means that his status as the righteous one, as the victorious one, as the conqueror over sin and death is now given to us as well. We now become dearly beloved children of God. We have a place in God's family. Because Jesus took our punishment, we walk free. This idea of exchange or of trading places appears from time to time in our culture. We, we see it portrayed maybe in art or in storytelling. One powerful portrayal of, of this kind of thing comes near the end of Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. If you're familiar with that story, you know that it, it talks about uh, really in, in some ways two people. There's a man, Charles Darnay, who is an exile. He comes from the French aristocracy. He's living in England, and it's the time of the French Revolution. And Charles Darnay has to go back to France to help one of the servants of his family. And while he's there, Charles Darnay is arrested, and he's brought before the people's court, and they bring against him the accusations for, for the crimes of his ancestors. And believe me, his ancestors were guilty of many crimes, they did terrible things. But now Charles Darnay is put in the horrible position of being sent to the guillotine because of what had been done by those who came before him. But yet there's this other man whose name is Sidney Carton. He's a friend of the family. And out of love for Charles Darnay's family, he comes and he visits Darnay in prison. And he actually forces Darnay. He, he tricks him. Darnay doesn't get a say in this. Sidney Carton changes places with him because the two men happen to look a lot alike. And so Carton sends Darnay out. 
Darnay walks free and Carton willingly sacrifices himself. He knows what's going to happen to him, but he gives his life so that this other man can have a new start, a new beginning. And though this story isn't a perfect representation of what Christ has done for us, it shows us, it reminds us that Christ has willingly traded places with us. He has taken the initiative. He faced the cross so that we might walk free and gain a new start on life. We have a change of status. And our change of status sets in motion a ripple effect in our lives, which leads next to a change of identity. Even though this transformation is the result of the reconciliation that Paul writes about in later in verse 18 and 19 and 21, Paul is so excited about the implications of this that he actually talks about the result before he talks about the cause. So, so backing up in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now, now, depending on the translation that you have in front of you, it may read somewhat differently. Some English translations say, if anyone, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Others, like the one we just read, say the new creation has come. Well, why is there the difference? Well, the difference is because Paul didn't use his words. If you, if you look at what Paul wrote in the Greek, he says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation we think, well, well, Paul, could you have said a little bit more about that? Can you, can you use your words here, Paul? But I think he left it open-ended on purpose because there are two things that are true, that we as individuals become a new creation, but also that when we receive the new birth from above, when we are born again by the grace of God and the power of Holy Spirit, we enter into a new mode of being. We enter into God's new creation. We enter into his kingdom. We experience a new way of life. We experience that, that new way to be human. And so Paul is giving us room to see that both of those things are true. Now we are citizens of a new kingdom order, the new reality that has been brought about because of what Jesus Christ has done. And this means that we have a new identity. No longer are we defined by our old lives in bondage to sin. Now we have new lives as children of God. Our new status of reconciliation leads to a new identity as participants, as members, as citizens of God's new creation. Reflecting on how God's grace changes everything in our lives Bible commentator Matthew Henry proclaims regenerating grace, that is the grace of the new birth in Christ, the new life that we have by the power of the Holy Spirit. Regenerating grace creates a new world in the soul. All things are new. The renewed man or woman acts from new principles, by new rules, with new ends, new goals, and in new company. We're part of a new family, the fellowship of the redeemed, others who are being made new, in the image of Jesus Christ. This new identity that we have as people of God's new creation also gives us a change of perspective. From this changed vantage point, not only does the world around us look different, but the people around us look different. Paul describes this change of perspective, again, a verse earlier here, the opening verse of our passage, verse 16. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. One of the results of our new creation identity is that we view people in a new creation kind of way. Now, as citizens of the old creation, we used to view people in an old creation kind of way, but now we're part of this new world, and that brings a new way of seeing people, a new way of people that's no longer rooted in the broken patterns of our depraved hearts and the bent ideals of a fallen world order, but is now based on who we are in Christ and who other people are in Christ. So, So what does it mean for us to regard someone from a worldly point of view. Well, really, if, if we could boil it down, it, it, means, it means to define, evaluate, or interact with someone without reference to their true value in God's eyes. You say, Pastor Andrew, could you boil it down a little more than that? And it would be when we grade someone according to the world's scorecard instead of grading them according to God's scorecard. And there are a lot of ways that we can do that. There are a lot of ways that I do this. Here, here are some examples from my own life. Um, a while ago, it gets longer and longer ago all the time, during my first week as a college student, lots of the students on campus were talking about this thing, signing up for this thing called Facebook. And uh, Facebook had been around for about a year at this point. That was back when it was just for college students. And it was described as sort of an online directory with information about people. People were using this word, a, a social network, whatever on earth that was. Um, so, so not wanting to be left out of this, I was intrigued. I signed up, I created an account, and I, I entered into this strange new world. But as time went by, I discovered that the ability for us to learn more about people and interact with them online or interact with how they present themselves online didn't exactly make it easier to view people with the love of Christ. Now, college students, because of Facebook at this time, we we could now see all sorts of things about each other that before we would have had to actually spend time with people, talking to them, getting to know them, building a relationship to find out. And now we just see these facts. And, And... that might lead to questions or reactions like, oh, they like to listen to that music or they joined that Facebook group or, oh, they really posted that comment. Ah, they can't spell. Their grammar's atrocious. Now, those are the kinds of things maybe I would notice. Other people might have noticed different things uh, looking at my account. And then on top of all those other things, there's the fact that people on that new platform could also describe their political views. Now, now we know where that has gone over the passage of time, uh, but for me as a college student, I mean, I, I had grown up with a fairly strong sense of, of what I believed politically that I had more or less absorbed from other Christians around me. I, and now, Facebook could show me who was on my side and, and who was on the other side. And sometimes I would be surprised by what I saw, especially if someone labeled themselves the opposite way that I labeled myself, and I would think, oh no, but they seemed like such a nice person. What's wrong? How could they think or believe that thing? Are they even really a Christian? And 
guess what? That was looking at them from a worldly point of view. And so I would start viewing some people more sympathetically and start viewing other people more suspiciously. Why? Because of a couple little words that they would put on their Facebook profile. And we all know there is so much more to anyone than just a couple little words. I was regarding people. I was regarding both the people that I considered to be right and those people I considered to be wrong. I was regarding them from a worldly point of view. And Jesus, Jesus showed me that that was wrong and that I needed to repent of that and that I needed to ask for his forgiveness. And, and over time, Jesus gave me the blessing of getting to know some of those people better and I could see that they, they believed and said what they did, not, not in spite of their Christian faith, but because of their Christian faith. And, and they applied that faith differently. Maybe they interpreted Scripture differently. And that, that challenged me to go back to Scripture and make sure that I was actually thinking through the issues of the day from a biblical point of view rather than a cultural point of view. And so God used that to humble me and to teach me and to show me that I ought to not make assumptions about other people. But it would be dishonest for me to stand here and tell you that viewing people from a worldly point of view is something in my past because for most of us, it's an ongoing struggle. As many of you know, one of the hats I wear here at the church is working with student ministries, and I'm sure you'll be shocked to know that working with student ministries with teenagers can be really hard sometimes. I know that's difficult to believe. We have some wonderful teenagers at this church, but over the years, we've also had some challenging teenagers. And, and we have some challenging teenagers right now, just like we have some wonderful teenagers right now who, who want to learn and grow and study Scripture but when I'm interacting with the teenagers who are maybe less excited about Jesus and maybe not living in a new creation kind of way, then I can begin to show favoritism and I can begin to treat people as more or less worthy based on how they treat me or how they respond or based on their behavior. Now, behavior is important and we want to teach right behavior. But if I start looking down on people that I'm called to minister to because of these other things, th then frankly, my attitude is a lot more like Jonah with the people of Nineveh than it is like Jesus. And so God has showed me that that is looking at people from a worldly point of view. And I need to repent. And I need to ask for his forgiveness. And I need to do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over as he continues to make me into a new creation. Guys, did I mention the fact that I'm sinful and, and broken? And, and so that means that it's easy for me to reach snap judgments about people based on superficial things. And I'm guessing that maybe I'm not alone here, that it, it's all too easy for me to warm up to some people or grow dismissive of other people based on things like how they dress or how they talk or their particular abilities maybe the color of their skin, the way that they interact with me or that I see them interacting with other people. And, and when I do that, when I do all of those things, I'm interacting with them from a worldly point of view. And so I need to repent and I need to ask for God's forgiveness. And, and those are just a few examples. There are so many ways that we can do this, where we view and treat people based on the world's values and not based on God's values. 
So what's the alternative to that? What's the better option? What is the gospel calling us to? If those things are the things that's on the human scorecard, what is on God's scorecard? Well, to view someone from God's point of view is to think of them based on their value in God's eyes. And that means two things. First, it means that we are to regard every human being that we encounter, regardless of their faith, regardless of their lifestyle choices, regardless of their ability level, regardless of their country of origin, regardless of their work ethic or their criminal background, regardless of which team they're cheering for in the Super Bowl, regardless of how likable they are, regardless of any of those things, we are to regard each person that we encounter as a glorious creation of God, as someone who is fashioned and made fearfully and wonderfully, someone fashioned in God's image as a -a one-of-a-kind masterpiece, as someone for whom Jesus would not hesitate to suffer and die on the cross in order to save. And, And second, for those who in addition to bearing God's image are also believers in Jesus Christ. Now we view them with the added honor of someone who has been redeemed and welcomed into God's family, who has a new place, who is our brother or sister in Christ. And so that is how we are to view other people. And and if there is any other criteria other than that that is driving how we treat people, how we view them, then we are viewing them in an old creation way, not in a new creation way. But as Paul says here, Our human tendency is not just to consider other people from a worldly point of view. It's also what? To consider Jesus from a worldly point of view. Now, before we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we may think of him in different ways. Maybe we think, wow, what an interesting moral fable, this idea of Jesus. Maybe we think, oh, he was a historical person. He was an enlightened teacher. He was a moral or social figure that we need to learn from today about his ethical teachings. Uh, he was someone maybe like Buddha or Confucius or, or Gandhi, or we might rank him among the great thinkers or teachers of the world. But all of those ways, that's not how Jesus thought of himself. Jesus quite clearly claimed over and over to be God, to be the Son of God. He claimed that he was the Savior, that he would suffer and die for the sins of the world, that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And not only did all of that happen, but Jesus, when he rose from the dead, went to heaven to the Father's right-hand side and told us that he is going to come back. So that is how the Bible tells us we are to think of Jesus, as the Savior, as the Lord, as the one who is supreme above all things. But even after we arrive at the point in our lives where we believe in Jesus, where we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we can still slip into worldly attitudes and ways of thinking about him. This happens when we drift away from the joy of following Jesus and we can slip into a mindset maybe of of drudgery, of, okay, well, I've got to obey these these words. I've got to go to church even though it's boring and the teacher, the preacher talks about lots of things that, don't apply to my life. Or, or we might say, you know, it'd be so much more fun to not really prioritize those things that Jesus tells us to prioritize. Uh, this can also happen, this viewing Jesus from an earthly point of view. When we begin to pick and choose 
when and how we obey him and when we do what we want to do instead. It can also happen when we basically go about life on our own terms, but we like to keep Jesus as our handy speed dial emergency contact. So if, some, if something comes up and we need him, he's only a quick prayer or phone call away. But other times, Jesus, do not disturb. Don't, don't mess with me. Don't bother me. Don't interfere with my life. That's viewing him from a worldly point of view. And also it happens when we try to sign Jesus up for our causes, for our priorities, when we try to remake Jesus in our image instead of allowing him to remake us in his image. But Paul says that we must not do this any longer. Knowing Jesus means that we must know him on his terms. It means that we must know our fellow human beings on his terms. It means that we must even know ourselves on his terms. And so our attitude and our posture towards all people now is filtered through the transformative reality of God's love. Pastor Derwin Gray reminds us that the moment we say yes to Jesus as our Redeemer and King, we are enrolled in his school of love that changes our lives. As students in this school, Jesus teaches us more and more to love people as he does. Because of our change of status, which leads to our change of identity, we receive a change of perspective. This change of perspective reflects our change of purpose in Christ. Jesus transforms us to be like him so that, among other reasons, we can more faithfully carry out the work that he has given to us. This is what we find as we go back and take another look at what Paul also says in verses 18 and 19. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, which we just talked about, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, which we talked about, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Well, well, what has God done according to these verses? He's basically done two things. He's reconciled us and he's given us a job. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And just to make sure that we get this message loud and clear, verse 20 says it a different way, saying we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And friends, this work is not optional. This ministry of reconciliation in which we both experience and receive reconciliation with God and we proclaim this good news to others, this is a vital part of our calling as new creation people. Matthew Henry declares reconciliation, being made right with God, is here spoken of as our indispensable duty, not optional, indispensable. As God is willing to be reconciled to us, we ought to be reconciled to God. And it is the great end, purpose, and design of the gospel, that word of reconciliation, to prevail upon sinners, to lay aside their enmity against God. As Christians, there are, there are two dimensions to this ministry of reconciliation, and both of them are really important. They're the vertical dimension the human relationship with God, as well as the horizontal dimension, the human-to-human -human relationship. And we, we talk about this a lot here at WEBC, about our attention both to the vertical 
into the horizontal. And, and this is why we talk about it, because of passages like this, because this is important to God. And what, what we see Paul really focusing on most in these verses, what we see him really driving home here, is the vertical dimension of our reconciliation. When Paul talks about this ministry, he's talking first and foremost about our need to be made right with God. Our relationship with God has been utterly broken, and it needs to be restored. As we've already seen, in Christ, God has accomplished this reconciliation, but we must receive it by faith. Nothing is more important than this. If we are not restored in this vertical relationship with God, then we cannot truly be reconciled in any of our other horizontal human-to-human relationships. We must be reconciled to God. This is the gospel plea. How do we do this? By receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. This means confessing and renouncing our sin and turning away from our life apart from God. This means asking Jesus to forgive us and to dwell within us by his Holy Spirit. It means believing that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he said that he has done. It means us saying to Jesus, you are now my Lord. I belong to you. Take my life and let it be yours. And friends, if you're here this morning and if you have not yet had this conversation with Jesus and if you are ready to have that conversation this morning, please come and speak with me or with Pastor Aaron or with one of our elders after this service. We would be so honored to walk through that conversation with you. This is the reconciliation that we proclaim to others as God's ambassadors. But the very fact that we are sent to share this message of hope to others, which is a horizontal action as we proclaim this to other people, that requires our attention to this other dimension, to the horizontal dimension of reconciliation. Our vertical reconciliation provides the foundation for the horizontal reconciliation with those around us. When Paul tells us not to regard anyone from a worldly point of view, he's talking about our relationships with other people, which flow forth from our relationship with God. So our purpose is to be God's ambassadors to bring about the vertical reconciliation of others with God. We want to see them brought to know Christ, but our purpose is also to be God's ambassadors so that others might not just have peace with God, but so that we might all have peace with one another. Because if I am reconciled with God and you are reconciled with God and all of us are reconciled with God, how could we be at enmity with one another? How could that division exist within the family of Christ? Both of these dimensions are so vitally important. They are the natural outworking of the two great commandments to love God and to love other people. And so if, if I do not love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if I do not pursue reconciliation with God in my own life, I am not going to be able to love and reconcile with my neighbor very well at all. 
And, and if I do not reconcile with my neighbor, if I don't commit myself to loving my neighbor and living at peace with my neighbor and with my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I'm probably not doing as good a job at loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength as I think that I am. Therefore, the task of human reconciliation is not an optional add-on, something that's good to do but not required. This is a natural and necessary outworking of our reconciliation with God himself. If we're serious about loving God, we must be serious about working toward reconciliation with our friends and with our family members. If we're serious about loving God, it means we need to admit to others when we are wrong and to seek their forgiveness, as we've talked about in the last few weeks. If we are serious about loving God, we must be serious about reconciliation between rich and poor, about understanding and and reconciling different generations and cultural factions. We must be serious about racial reconciliation and about bringing together all groups of people who are estranged from one another, whether nations, whether congregations and churches, or whether in our own families. We must be peacemakers and healers of broken relationships. We must become, in all things, Christ's instruments of peace. Why? Because that's what our Father desires for us. Pastor Derwin Gray reminds us that at the heart of the good news is God the Father's heart for reconciliation. He wants to reconcile humanity to himself vertically and humanity to each other horizontally. And he goes on to add vertical reconciliation with God and horizontal reconciliation with each other make a cross. And that's to remind us of the cruciform life that we want to live as Jesus lived, that we want each day to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, to follow Jesus, to offer our life to him, to do his work in his world, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So what do we do with all this? Where do we go from here? What does Paul want us to take away from this passage? Well, Well, he tells us that very openly in verse 20. What is God's appeal to us? Be reconciled to God. So our response and our obedience to God's word for this week and indeed for this series, it's for us to be reconciled, for us to open ourselves up to God's change in our lives. And there are four ways that this ought to happen. First, we need to experience reconciliation first and foremost by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's no way of getting around that. That is foundational. If you haven't done that yet, then again, I beg you, don't go any longer without receiving the reconciliation, the peace, the life, the joy, the freedom that Jesus offers to you. But biblical reconciliation involves the entire Christian life because guess what? Even when we receive salvation, a new life in Christ, we are still sinners. There are still parts of your lives and parts of my life that are out of step with God's heart for us. And we need to bring those things into alignment and into reconciliation with God's purposes. That means we need to be going back to Scripture. We need to be searching our hearts. We need to be repenting and turning to Christ, trusting Christ, asking him to change us, to take these areas of our lives where that reconciliation still needs to work itself out. Third, we also need to experience reconciliation horizontally 
not just by dealing with sin's effects on our individual lives, but by dealing with sin's effects on our relationships. If there are people that we have hurt, people that we have harmed, if there is division in our lives, then we need to seek forgiveness. We need to make amends. We need to try to reconcile those relationships. It means we need to try to work for reconciliation in the lives of one another to be peacemakers as we go about our day-to-day lives in our families and our workplaces and, and, yes, in our church as well. And fourth, all of this invites us to experience the peace that reconciliation brings. Because often we can give our lives to Christ, but we still wrestle with doubts and questions. And, and even though the Bible tells us we're made right with God, we may not always feel that way. We might think, well, I still make mistakes. Is God ashamed of me? Is God mad at me? Is there something more that I need to do? Can I really come to God with everything? And the Bible offers us that assurance that that is part of our reconciliation. And, and, and we see these questions and these heart burdens answered in the words of Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 4. In this passage, Zechariah beholds a vision of, of the high priest at the time, a man named Joshua, who represents the people of God. And, and Joshua stands before the Lord, but he stands as a poor representative because he has dirty, filthy clothes on, and he feels so unworthy. And the accuser is there lobbing accusations against Joshua and against the people of God. And here's what we see in the words of that passage. Then he showed me, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, which in the biblical languages means the accuser, standing at his right side, guess what to do? To accuse him. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, verse 3, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, But, verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. What do we see in this passage? We see our enemy, the accuser, telling us that we're not good enough, telling us that we are not worthy, telling us that God can't really love us and he can't really use us or do anything in our lives because of what we've done and because of who we are. The accuser reminds us, he dredges up our sense of failure and our sense of feet. He keeps bringing it in front of us. He gets us believing eventually that God is mad at us, that God is disappointed with us, and that God is ashamed of us. And brothers and sisters, nothing could be further for the truth For those who belong to Jesus Christ, we are God's children. We are his beloved family. And so in this passage here, we see the heart of God for his people, the heart of God for us, that God rebukes, he silences the accuser, and God declares who we are, that we are like sticks that have been snatched out of the fire. We would have been consumed, but now we have been rescued. God knows that this is true. Why? Because he is the one who reached into the fire and pulled us out because he loves us. Because he is for us. And that is why he has taken away 
the filthy rags of our sin, of our failure, of our brokenness. He's taken away the reminder of what we've done, of who we were apart from Christ. And in their place, we wear the perfect, the spotless, the royal garments of righteousness. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took our filthy rags upon himself. Our sin and our failures have been dealt with. They have no more power because they have been defeated at the cross. And so Jesus invites us to remember who we are because of that, that nothing can snatch us out of God's hand, that nothing can change his heart of love toward us, that we need not be afraid to come to him as children before our loving Heavenly Father. We are accepted. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to be alone. For we are a new creation, set free by the one who gave himself for us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as people, Lord, who are tired, who are broken, who are weak, who are dealing so often, Lord, with with shame, with doubt, with a sense of our failure. Lord, remind us who we are. Remind us what you have done for us. Lord, may the truths that we know in our minds take root deeply within our hearts, that we would have the boldness, the confidence, the assurance of knowing that we are your children, that we are like a stick snatched out of the fire, that we are given a new status, a new identity, a new perspective, and a new purpose, Lord, that we are yours and you are ours, and nothing can change that. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know that peace, may this be the day when they can enter into that rest and that joy in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.